And then on the seller side, the strategics buy 100%, whereas private equity normally buys 70 or 80 or maybe 85%. So there's no rollover equity or second bite of the apple. It's a much cleaner acquisition. Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up. So buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business organically through sales and marketing and providing great products and services, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of dealmakers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large, complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My guest today is Gary Kane. Gary founded Chimera Strategies in 2011. Chimera provides strategic advisory services on business sales and divestitures and business acquisitions to the lower middle market, employing its proprietary investment banking process, or M&A Lite. Gary is a member of the Long Island Business News 40 Individuals Under 40 group, and LIBN considers award winners to be the rising stars in the Long Island business community. Gary's mantra, I would rather be lucky than smart, but I work very hard to be lucky. Gary, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, thank you, Corey. Appreciate it very much. So Gary and I have known each other for a few years. And, and um, you know, one of the many reasons I wanted to have him on the show is because uh, he focuses in a overlooked uh, area of deals, which is uh, deals, as you as you heard, for sort of that lower middle market um, that a lot of investment banking firms don't focus on. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a few other things around deals. But before we go there, Gary, um, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid, when you were a little boy growing up. What did you want to be? Because my guess is uh, an investment banker might not have been it back then, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> Actually, when I was little, I wanted to be a cow. <laughs> believe it or not, but that clearly did not work out. Um, when I sort of found myself, I wanted to work at a hedge fund. Um, I, I was uh, really excited about the opportunity to uh, to understand and review and look into companies, um, and that was my dream. And back then, the hedge fund was newer than relatively new, and really an exciting part of Wall Street. Um, and luckily, I was able to do that for about seven or eight years uh, in the 90s. Oh, great. So now, uh, what would you consider your first business, first real business? However you define that. Was that Chimera or did you have something when you were a kid or growing up? Uh, yeah. No, I, I, I mean, uh, Chimera is really my Chimera, first sir. business. I, I had a few um, fast failures along the way. Um, kind of side side gigs or side deals that I was trying to do while working full time, uh, but but Chimera is my really my first real business and been at it for eight or nine years. Uh, learned valuable lessons that you really can't do something on the side or at night. You really got to be either all in or all out. If you're gonna take, well, if you want to take the island, burn the boats. Yeah, I love it. So, so actually, I'm just gonna. Uh, you mentioned sort of uh, things when you were younger that you know dabbled in or whatever. I'm I'm curious as to if you have uh, an example of one of those and maybe a lesson you learned at a young age that has helped you now with Chimera. Yeah, uh, uh, one of them in particular, and two actually. One of them, I had the beginnings of Ebates. 
where you would kind of recommend your friend and get paid via the Ebates model. Uh, and I was um, didn't have enough money, didn't have enough capital or resources to get that done. The other one, I used to live on the Upper East Side and I wanted a slice of pizza and never knew, you know, I was on 76th Street and maybe there was a good place on 75th Street or 73rd Street and didn't want to constantly walk around the Upper East Side. So I started collecting menus. Uh, and my thought was to build sort of a map around restaurants in my area. Uh, and shortly thereafter, Yahoo Map Maps came out and MapQuest and, and I was out of business. <laughs> so, I love so the, it. Uh, the learning there is I was right on with the ideas. I just didn't have the capital or the resources, uh, which I know is not an excuse, but but didn't have either to really move forward. Um, and uh, again, didn't do it full time, worked full time and tried to do it on the side. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because I always say uh, uh, that in between idea and manifestation is a, is a you know, that, that's really where the journey is, right? You know, a lot of us yeah. have good ideas, but to actually have them execute. So, uh, you know. That, that's and, the key is, is the execution. Yeah. Ideas are meaningless if you don't execute on them. Yeah, I got it. So so tell us about, now, now that I have the pronunciation right, and I should have known it because we noticed it a little, a little while, but uh, so t- tell us about what, uh, what uh, you know, give us a couple of sentences on what uh, Chimera does. Sure. So um, I uh, established Chimera in 2010 or 2011, and the thinking was really twofold. One, you have this baby boomer generational trend. The statistics are 60, 65% of businesses are owned, run by a baby boomer. And second, third, fifth generation, not interested, not available, or not capable. So they've got to think about some sort of exit. And second was, I thought, was the hole in the market. And that hole in the market, as you as you rightly referred to, is what I consider to be the lower middle market. Uh, that term is relative for, for everybody. But the way I define it is uh, above the business broker or about uh, zero to two, three million in revenue and below the traditional investment banker at about 25 million in revenue. So we started around 3 million in rev or 500,000 of EBITDA and go up to about 25 million in rev or about two and a half, three million of EBITDA. Um, And that's my market that's called the lower middle market. And we don't approach it as a glorified business broker. We really approach it as a simplified investment banker because companies in the five, seven, nine, 12 million revenue businesses really need the advisory of an investment banker, but can't garner their attention given the fee structure. That's that's great. So let, let's uh, let's talk about some definitions for our audience, right? So what is the difference between a business broker and an investment banker? Sure. So the business broker is really more like a real estate model. They've got 50 or 75 listings, quote unquote. Uh, they list them on a biz buy sell website, which is kind of like an MLS. Uh, they put an asking price on a deal uh, and they basically have a passive marketing campaign. They sit and wait. When they get a bite, they try to close that deal as quickly as they can. Uh, and the close rate is probably 20%, 10, 20%, something like that. Uh, investment bankers work on you know, a handful of deals. Uh, close rate is much higher, and they run a controlled auction or competitive process. So they don't work with the first potential buyer that comes in the door. Uh, they create a timelined uh, controlled auction process to generate competition, and it's a much more active 
um, active marketing where they basically go out and seek and find the buyer. Uh, the other difference is in the business broker space, the buyer is traditionally an independent Joe or Jane, someone that got laid off from Citigroup or or a father who uh, wants to set up their kid in, in business or someone who just wants to be uh, their own business owner. Um, and on the, on the investment banking side, the buyer is traditionally private equity or family office. Uh, which is also different than my buyer. Uh, as we talked about, my buyer is really in the strategic or uh, same or similar company in the same or similar industry. So that's great. So before, I definitely want to get into the concept of strategic, but before we go there, um, this business broker versus investment banker, I think those are great, that's a great distinction for people who are less familiar with deals to understand. And you know, also, I, I guess the other thing that I would add, and you can tell me if you agree, but I, I think you do, is that you know, investment bankers also provide a broader scope of services. You know, usually they are more involved on a strategy and consulting basis to get buyers ready for sale, for example, or to prepare sellers to you know to buy. Uh, you know, it's it's you know, like you said, it's way beyond just sort of a listing you know service. Yes, that's correct. Uh, as well as you can go to IP, you know, IPO, capital raising. Uh, debt, debt, uh, you know, debt sales. Whereas business broker just just basically lists properties, uh, quote unquote. Great. And listen, you know, the one of the things that I want to say is that, you know, although obviously uh, in the investment bank is provide a more sophisticated role, there is a role at the lower end of the market for business brokers. In that investment investment bankers won't touch it. I mean, even you know, you, you do the lower middle market, but there's there's a there's a below which uh, you know. Uh, is not worth you to get involved because you can't provide the level of service you do. Um, so the, the business brokers do pay a role for a certain type of business. But, uh, you know, if you have a business that's looking to buy or sell, you really want to determine where on the spectrum you are and which ki- type of, uh, you know, a person you should be working with. And if you're, you know, anything beyond a really small, you know, business, then you at least want to consider working with an investment banker over a business broker. Absolutely, absolutely, and and you're absolutely right. The the, del- the corner deli or the you know the the local main street clothing stop sh- uh, store uh, business broker is the absolute right choice uh, for that, um, and, and no nobody else would work with them. And then obviously, as you get much larger, the business broker doesn't have any training as an investment banker to to offer that advisory. Great. So let's talk uh, for a second about, before we get to the strategic conversation, about this concept of the lower middle market, because, you know, I, I see it all the time where entrepreneurial businesses who are, you know, successful in that, uh, you know, they have some employees, they, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're pretty, they're established in that, uh, you know, they're, they're going to be around for a while. Uh, they make a very nice living for their owners and 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 maybe for a couple of key executives, uh, but they go to they go to the market to sell, and most of the investment bankers won't look at them because they're in that in between stage. So, to, and that's your market. So, you know, t- talk about that a little bit uh, further. Sure. Sure, sure, and it's it's actually much easier, as you would know, Corey, to do a five hundred million dollar deal than it is to do a five million dollar deal. <laughs> right, right. It, it's it's harder, and and the reason is is a couple of reasons. One, the fees are lower because there's just not a lot of money going around. Yep. Um, that's the first step. So they can't get to that three hundred or five hundred thousand dollar minimum, as well as that fifty thousand dollar engagement fee. Um, second is um, private equity won't play in the space because it's too small and it's not worth it for them. So it, it cuts out a significant buyer pool uh, already. Uh, third, the financials are, are definitely not audited, sometimes just uh, just reviewed or compiled. 
um, you know, fourth, uh, they probably are not growing. There's probably not a second layer of management. Um, they're probably pretty owner centric, um, which makes it all challenging. And third, there are no lenders in the space. So, you know, the, the multiples are compressed because the seller either has to do seller financing or earn out because there, there are literally no lenders in the lower middle market space. Right. So, so this ties into the conversation of, of why a lot of your deals and, and you gave me a percentage before you know, we went on air, I'll let you, I'll let you say it, uh, are strategic deals, right? Because if you have, uh, so just to make a distinction, listeners up front, uh, you know, there are uh, financial buyers and strategic buyers, you know, if you want to put them in two, two big blocks and financial buyers are people who like private equity firms and others who invest to get a, just mainly focused on just getting a return on their money. And, you know, they may be looking to buy and flip a company. They may be looking to buy an, an IPO, a company. Um, but the bottom line is they, they analyze mainly based upon financial return uh, and they're not necessarily companies in that industry. Um, they're professional buyers very often. And what Gary just said is that, you know, th- those buyers are not as available, uh, you know, in the, in the lower middle uh, market. So, so talk to us about the concept of what a strategic buyer is and why the majority of the deals you do are with strategic buyers for your clients. Sure. Uh, the reason why financial buyers don't, don't play in my space is one is size. Um, they're looking for at least 2 million of EBITDA. And I use the rule of thumb about 10% of sales is EBITDA. So they're looking for at least uh, 20 million of revenue businesses for it to be financially worth it for them to do all the work involved. Uh, because it's the same amount of work to do a $500 million deal as to do a $5 million deal, and they won't make as much money uh, at the $5 million. And the second one is just as important. There's no second layer of management usually. Usually it's the owner that's running it, and private equity are not operators. They're financial buyers. Um, and if the owner leaves, who's going to run it? Right. And in fact, uh, you know, private equity firms, one of the main things they're looking for is a strong management team in place. Right. That's right. And if that owner leaves in a small business, there, there isn't a VP, there, are, there aren't VPs, there aren't COOs, generally speaking. Uh, there's usually the owner that's really got his hands in everything and a couple of key people. So if that owner leaves, that second layer of management is not existent and it will fall apart. Okay, great. So, so talk to us about what a strategic buyer is and why those things aren't as much of a concern to a strategic buyer. Sure. So a strategic buyer, um, in, in my opinion, is, uh, and I define it as the following, uh, a company in the same or similar industry, uh, and depending on the business, in the same or similar geography. Uh, so I'll give you real world examples. So um, working on uh, three deals in due diligence at the moment, uh, one we have is a venue here in the city. So uh, they rent out space in the city in Brooklyn and they re-rent and they, they prop and prep it with furniture uh, and they re-rent it for uh, events, for photo shoots and for video, uh, video uh, you know, uh, commercials. So the, we're in due diligence. So the buyer uh, has venues as well as their production department. So um, they rent out his facilities as well as they have their own. So they do the same thing as well as they do something similar. Um, so 86% of my deals are sold to just like that. Another deal in due diligence, we've got a granite and marble stone distributor, a regional distributor. The buyer is a, a, a distributor that's about five times larger. So they're basically picking up inventory, picking up locations, and picking up people. Got it. 
So, you know, so the interesting part is, let's, you know, breaking down what you said before. So those buyers are less concerned that there isn't, you know, a significant management team in place because they have their own management team. Correct. Uh, and they're usually going to fold in the, you know, this business. They may take some key employees. Obviously, they want the clients. They, there may be some intellectual property or, you know, or, uh, you know, but most often it's, uh, you know, it's it, it's access to the to the clients, right? You know, the customers uh, that they have and, uh, and they have infrastructure. They have... Um, uh, back office, they have strategy, you know, uh, you know, like uh, p- people that uh, do it on, on the various management levels. So they're not concerned about that piece like a financial buyer would be. That, that's correct. That's correct. Plus, they've got the potential access to capital because a bank, if it lends at all, will only lend if someone's in the industry. So they've got potential access to capital. Um, and then on the seller side, the strategics buy 100% whereas private equity normally buys 70 or 80 or maybe 85%. So there's no rollover equity or second bite of the apple. It's a much cleaner acquisition. Right. And let's talk about how some of these deals are structured because you, you, you mentioned terms before, you know, like earn out and things like that. And I know every deal is, is somewhat different, but, you know, even though you're saying they're buying 100% of the company, uh, you know, usually there's some portion up front, some portion over time, some portion that might be an earn out. Talk talk about structure a little bit. Right. So most of my deals, if not actually basically almost all of them, um, given that there's really no lenders in that small lower middle market space, even for strategics, but but given that there really isn't any lenders, uh, the terms usually include uh, or definitely include cash. And that's at least 50 to 60 percent of the purchase price or else to me, it's not a real buyer. Um, and then the balance is either a seller's note uh, and or an earn out. And I've seen all three uh, in, in some cases. Uh, obviously, on the risk scale, you want ca- all cash first, but that's non-existent in smaller deals because they're too owner centric. So they're too risky. Uh, second would be a seller's note. Uh, and then the third would be earn out. Earn out is a way we try to goose up the purchase price. Uh, and the buyers like it because it says they really believe in their business. Yeah. So let's break down those last two components a little bit. So for people, you know, we have some very sophisticated listeners and some people are just getting into the deal space uh, or wanting to learn about it. So when Gary says owner's note, that that's basically a promise or a note. It's a promise to pay uh, a certain portion of the purchase price on the back end. And, and, a, and a true note, you know, it might be contingent upon uh, not having any breaches of the representation of warranties. In other words, not, not basically lying about what you promised the, um, the buyer, uh, but otherwise it's a, it's a, you know, it's an obligation to pay. Whereas right. an earnout, talk to us about an earnout because an earnout is is different. There's no guarantee you get any money on an earnout. It's usually based on certain triggers, right? Right. So it, it basically, like you just said, um, the way I like to do an earnout is, is based on a percent of sales. So ideally, if the company uh, and we use it, uh, let's say trailing twelve months or a uh, million dollars in revenue, and you want to pay ten percent of sales. Um, so ideally, they would get a hundred percent of that purchase price if the business stays exactly the same for the the three years the earnout is in place. If the business grows um, over that period of time, they should get paid more. Just as if the business shrinks over that period of time, they would get paid less. What doesn't change is the the, the the percentage of uh, usually sales, but it could be sales, could be gross profit, could be other things. But usually that percentage stays the same. What fluctuates is the base. So uh, the base being trailing 12 months of sales, that's when we lock it in and you would get paid a percentage. Uh, and the idea uh, where you um, have a win-win with the buyer 
is you and the buyer help grow it, which means you make more money over time. Right. So, and, and, you know, it's, it's a pretty common element. It's not in every deal, but it's a pretty common element of a deal. And it's used to, uh, for, for a number of purposes. I mean, one to protect, uh, you know, or incentivize, right. Uh, people going forward. Also, you know, I've seen it, Gary, I'm sure you've seen this as well, where it's sort of the way you close a difference in purchase price desire, where the, where the, um, the seller wants a higher number, the buyer wants a lower number. And this uh, part of the reason why the seller wants a higher number is he thinks things are on an uptick and doesn't want to leave some of that upside on the table. And the buyer says, well, yeah, but what, what if, you know, that's just what you think right. is going to happen. How, how do I know it's going to happen? Right. Right. You're exactly right. And I can give you an example there too. Uh, experience share on that. So uh, I was doing a deal a couple of years ago in the uh, food and beverage industry, uh, more specifically Italian sausage. Um, phenomenal, phenomenal guy, perfect fit. Uh, he does four and a half, five million in revenue, third generation, 60 years old. The buyer was another food company about two times the size and during due diligence, chicken prices uh, tripled and EBITDA came way down. Um, and the buyer is screaming, well, I, I priced the deal on EBITDA. Now EBITDA is significantly lower. And the seller is saying, well, you know, chicken prices go up and down. I didn't raise prices because I know it's going to go down. I've been doing this for 40, 30, 40, whatever years. Chicken prices go up and down. It's just a blip. So we decided on changing the structure a little bit into an earnout betting on the fact that chicken prices will come down and EBITDA will go up. And the last time I spoke to him a month or two ago, that exactly happened and he's on track to get his full amount. Right. Right. So that, that's a great example. And, and, and by the way, most of our uh, listeners are know what EBITDA is, but uh, just to, for the few that may not, it's earnings before income uh, uh, taxes, uh, depreciation, and amortization, basically, in a layman's way, you know, you basically look at it, the profit and cash flow, you know, after adjustment for non-cash items like depreciation and amortization. Um, uh, so, Corey, if, if I may, you said earnings yeah. before income. It's earnings before interest. I'm sorry, taxes. interest. Th- thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Earnings and before I, I misspoke. Earnings before right. interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. So it's it's fundamentally your you know, your net cash flow adjusted by the non-cash items. Like that's so right. you know, and, and that's a pretty common way, uh, just just to speak the valuation for a second, right? You know, sometimes in some industries you'll hear re- about revenue multiples, but, you know, companies have different profitability. So uh, EBITDA is a much more uh, uh, common way that any kind of sophisticated buyer is going to analyze a deal versus versus uh, gross revenue. That's correct. And especially in the, you know, the smaller deals, you know, obviously the, the SaaS deals, the technology deals, the, the they're potentially priced on revenue. But in my world, if you're under a million of EBITDA, you're probably at a two to three times multiple. If you're a million to two million of EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA, which means your EBITDA uh, plus or minus the adjustments, maybe owner's compensation, maybe rent if they own the building. Um, one to two million EBITDA, you're probably at a three to four times. For uh, two million to five million EBITDA, uh, you're probably at a four to six, four to seven. Five million EBITDA, you're uh, seven plus. Uh, and the reason there is you've got lenders. Right. Once you get into the larger uh, deal, right, there's more ability to finance. Yeah. People will lend. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, what what you're seeing, if anything, in terms of trends in this in this uh, lower middle market. You know, uh, in terms of where the economy is, just trends overall. Any concerns that you have moving forward? 
Yeah, sure. So um, it, it is absolutely a seller's market, which I'm sure you've heard. There's a tremendous amount of capital um, in private equity hands and family office hands, even in company hands. Um, and uh, people want to put that money to work. So, so multiples are, 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 are definitely higher than they've been. Um, I, mean, I, think, I think the following, everybody's waiting for this baby boomer generational trend to start selling. And some of them have. And um, I'm not sure if the wave has come as much as we have all thought. Um, and, and my reason is the following, is that for the last few years, business has been good. Uh, economy's growing. Sales are growing, making money, you know, having some fun, doing as a person as opposed to 08, 09, 10, having fun, right? Making money, things are a little bit easier. Why sell? And the the challenge there is when things turn, they're gonna say, Man, this is hard. And when they turn, nobody knows, but we know it will all turn. Man, this is hard. I'm not making as much money. I want to sell, but their expectations are still in line with what they are now versus what they will be in a in a not as good of economy. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me because I had this exact conversation on episode one of uh, Fueling Deals. So listeners, if you haven't listened to that one, you can go back. Uh, I had Dave DeVoe on, who's an investment banker who focuses specifically in the investment advisory space. And, uh, you know, the demographics in that space particularly are, you know, the average owner is approaching 60, uh, you know, in, in that space. And he feels like there are half the deals going on that there should be in that space. And it sounds like you feel in the broader market, it's, you know, it's somewhat similar. And, we, you know, we also had, you know, had a conversation about, you know, it's interesting. On the one hand, you don't want to try to time the market because I don't believe anybody can. But on the other hand, I've seen too many businesses do exactly what you talked about, which is that, they say, hey, why should I sell now? Things are good. The money's cruising in. But then the next downturn turn comes and they're 64 years old or 68 years old or whatever the, right. you know, the number is. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and it's going to be five years before things come back up anywhere near what they were. And then, you know, they sell out, uh, you know, when it's heading towards the bottom. Uh, that's so, right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It, it's, you got to buy on the rumor and sell on the news sort of. The other thing they don't realize is how long it takes to do a transaction and how long they're they're involved. So, you know, when when you start with an engagement agreement, the average transaction can take uh, nine months um, to just to do the transaction. And then, depending on the buyer, you've got an employment agreement for at least three or six months, and as much as five, with the average being three. So all in, it'll take you three or four years to be out anyway. <laughs> so if you're 62, 63, they're not thinking 67, they'll be done. Um, and that's what I stress. But it, it doesn't happen overnight. There's a, a tremendous amount of activity and difficulty in closing a deal. The fastest I've ever done a deal is seven months. Uh, the slowest I've ever done a deal, I'm actually still working on it since 2016. <laughs> We've been trying to close every day now uh, for the last month, uh, and but literally three years of work. Yeah, and and listen. So you know where I come out, and Gary can tell, say whether he agrees or disagrees. You know, listen. If you're if you're thinking you want to sell your business in eight to ten years, there's some things, by the way, you should start doing now to get prepared for that. But it's not like you know you're necessarily going to rush, and just because the market's high, you're gonna you know you're gonna get out. But but on the flip side, if you're thinking, hey, you want to get out in two or three years. You may want to consider the the where the market is now, and that there's no guarantee it's going to be there two three years from now, and and you know at least consider accelerating your process. 
Right. I, I would I would add to that in the fact that you know if you're if you take the emotion out of it, um, if you can get a premium for an asset now, you sell it. <laughs> and I think you can get a premium for their assets today, irrespective if they want to sell three, five, seven, nine years from now. But it's that emotional component that comes into play as well. That's right. I mean, I've had clients say to me, I mean, I, 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 I forget whether I might have relayed this on one on a prior episode, but uh, I had a client um, many, many years ago. I'm going back 20 something years. And it just uh, sticks with me because he was in his 30s and he really hit it well. He had a uh, he had a uh, firm where he placed uh, tech people in, in Wall Street firms, you know, at the, all the big investment banks. And, uh, and he was killing it. I mean, the business blew up, blew up. You know, he was doing $20, 30000000 million in revenue as a 30-something-year-old guy. And, um, you know, and I was saying, I mean, you, should, you should consider selling this thing. The, the multiples are ridiculously high right now. Plus, I also knew that Wall Street uh, had this thing where they would outsource all of their IT stuff. And then the new person would come in and they would say, why are we paying all these, you know, consultants? We're going to bring it all in-house. And then it would be, you know, so he had two major risks. One was general economic, you know, and market risk, uh, economy, et cetera, the market. And then he had this risk that just the cyclical nature of the outsourcing versus not on Wall Street. And, uh, you know, and, and he didn't sell. And his reasoning was, well, what am I going to do, Corey? I said, you're a smart guy. You'll start another business, you know, whatever. Right. You can travel the, the world. If you don't want to travel right. the world, you'll start another business. But he didn't sell. And, and multiples oh, dropped, dropped to one ten- literally one-tenth of what they would have been uh, at its height. And probably his business fell off, too. And, you know, yes. again, it's the emotional component also. Uh, um, and and they don't think of it as an asset that to buy and sell. Um, but the, the other piece of that is, um, you know, as you, you get, you, you take out your three year non-compete, you're done. You could do whatever you want. You could start, start another business just the same. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And listen, I get it. There are other people, uh, other reasons that people are in business sometimes, and it's just not about the money for them. And I'm not saying that they should always make the decision there, but I think they should consider some of the factors that you and I have talked about. Uh, exactly. Okay. So, um, you know, there's so much we can talk about, but we are, uh, you know, come, coming to the end here. And um, let me, uh, uh, I, I'm going to have a last question for you. But before we do, I'm sure people have gotten huge value from listening to you today. And if they're, uh, you know, in that lower middle market space and thinking about buying or selling or, uh, you know, or just want to find out more information about you uh, and, and what you do, uh, what's the place, place for them to reach you or, or check out more information about you? Sure, sure. So uh, I've got a, a website, uh, strategies.com. That's uh, C, H as in Harry, I, M as in Mary, E-R-A, strategies.com. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, of course, uh, as well as the number is very easy to remember, one eight five five chimera So that's one eight five five two four four six three seven two. 244 So uh, as accessible as, uh, as I can be. That's that's great, Gary, and uh, uh, I definitely appreciate all the value you provided. My last question that I always ask people is: um, anybody who knows me, and I think you know me well enough uh, uh, that and know that authenticity is one of my highest values. Is a reason why my book is called Authentic Negotiating. And for me, authenticity is not about external morals or even integrity, which is a different conversation, but it's about aligning your business decisions, the deals you do, uh, your life choices uh, with your inner truth, with really what, you know, what, what is it that's true for you and not being influenced by maybe some other external factors. Um, I'm curious as to how you stay authentic and whether 
when you advise your clients. So I ask it twofold, you know, uh, whether that conversation comes into a play at all when you deal with, with buyers and sellers. Yeah, uh, very good question. I appreciate that. Um, the first one I can definitely answer, and, and unfortunately, I learned it the hard way, <laughs> as, as <laughs> most people learn things. But um, since 2017, uh, I've worked on nine deals, I've closed seven, and I've got three in due diligence at the moment. So I've got a 78% close rate, which I would suggest to you is um, very, very good and, and probably comparable to, to investment banks uh, much, much larger than me doing much larger deals. Um, and what I learned uh, uh, along the way and what I uh, abide by now is three things in a potential client. One is a good business that I truly think I can close at least 75% of the time. Two and, and is really key, a good person. It's got to be a person I truly want to help. Uh, I learned the hard way that um, if I'm thinking with my wallet and not my head, it doesn't work and you don't close a deal anyway. So that's how I really stay true is I really try to work with interesting businesses, people I really want to help, and people who are realistic in their expectations of price and terms. Um, and, And that's where I came to in 17, and that's how I got to where I am today and how I stay authentic. Uh, The second part of your question is you can always walk away. So if something doesn't feel right, if something doesn't sit right, if things are just not going well, uh, you're entering into a marriage. Uh, As much as everybody wants to close a deal and and when the train has left the station, it's very challenging to to shut it all down, no matter how much money you spent on lawyers, accountants. Uh, I advise my client that you could always walk away. If something isn't sitting right, you could always walk away. However, if you do, you know, what's your batna? Do you have another alternative? Is there something else out there? Or you just walk away for, for whatever reasons, but you always have that option. And that's also what I think it, it makes it authentic is, is I'm always saying to my client, because the, the negotiations get very difficult, things get very trying, there's lots of back and forth. You can always walk away, but do we want to? Right. From, from an authentic place as opposed to from some upset or anger or temporary, you know, frustration, right? That, that's right. That's right. Because these, these negotiations it. get very difficult, as you know. Um, people get very emotional and it's my job to really be the calming voice. And Yes, we can walk away. Yes, we can take our money and run. Yes, we can make more money next year, the year after. But is that the right thing to do when, when uh, cool heads, you know, cool heads um, rule? That's great. Gary, thank you so much for being on the on the show today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Corey. I really enjoyed it. And thank you, Fueling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't. And it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor, other than that the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals. And then they take action. That's time to refuel. So until next week, Corey Kupfer signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at fuelingdeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth.